Welcome to the Table Podcast. We hope what you hear today inspires joy in your heart and causes you to be convinced that God is good and He is for you. Enjoy the message. One of the points last week, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. I think it's a really good point. It's, it's that God's way is not, keep, it's not about keeping the fun out. God's way is to keep the fun in. That's a really good point. And a lot of times when we think about church, we think about religion, legalism, tradition. We think about like the do's and don'ts, but we, Jesus is life. I love John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it says, all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that's come into being. Well, that's kind of crazy to say. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus isn't into religion. Jesus isn't a party pooper. Jesus is actually where the fun and the joy is. God doesn't give us precepts in his law. He doesn't give us commandments to bind us up and to take the fun out. He gives us those things to keep the fun in. And so as I speak a lot of times, if people are legalists or if they're just party poopers or if they're just like really like unteachable or they're mad or they're pharisaical, they just don't like me a lot because I think that Jesus has come not just exclusively to bring the party, but what was his first miracle? Turning water into wine. By this, he revealed his glory or his goodness. And John 2, everybody with me? So I think that we've separated the Christian life so much that we're like, God, you know, like, I'm going to be churchy over here. But over here, like, I want to have fun. Like, God, I want to do the right thing over here in church and before your eyes religiously. But I also want to have fun. And we've split that so much that it's all about do's and don'ts, good and bad, heaven and hell. And we miss the fact that Jesus Christ, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners not so that he would get down under their level, but so that he would get on their level to love them where they are, to bring them into a more fruitful, productive, beautiful life. Amen? Amen. So it's like when I speak a lot of times, you know, I don't think there's a lot of Pharisees in the room. I, I took my Pharisee gauge out earlier, and I didn't sense a lot of Phariseeism here. But uh, in the back over there, kind of around Blake and Stephen and Cody, I kind of I felt a little bit coming from you guys, but... I'm just going to go ahead and throw this verse out here um, just so everybody can see just very clearly from the scripture in John chapter 15 that Jesus is about not taking the fun out, but he's about keeping the fun in. And that all goes back to his glory. John chapter 15. We'll start with verse four. Everybody say abide. abide. We'll go to, to verse five. Everybody say abide. abide. Go to verse six. Everybody say abide. Verse 7, everybody say abide. abide. Um, verse 8 doesn't have abide, but verse 9, everybody say abide. abide. You got a lot of abiding going on here. And I want to abide. How do I abide? Like, what's this abiding all about? Well, let's just look at when Jesus gives the description here in verse 9. A lot of times we talk about abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ. Well, what does that mean? Y'all remember that cell phone commercial? I don't know if it was like AT&T or Sprint. And like, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Anybody remember that commercial? Am I just stupid old? It's like we're walking around with the Lord. Like, am I abiding now? Is this abiding? Like, am I abiding now? Is this good enough for your abiding? Because we have a wrong understanding or concept of what abiding is. So as he says abide in, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 9, let's see what actually abiding looks like. Are you at John 15, 9? Just as the Father has loved me, 
I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Let's look at that again. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Let's say those three words together. Abide in my love. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't stay in school very long. <laughs> I also have kids. And they're about grown and they love me. So praise God. Abide in my love. Let's say those five words together. Four words. Let's say it together. Abide in my love. Am I abiding now? Am I abiding now? Well, where is his love not? So we're learning to readjust to his truth, which is bigger than our feelings, not basing everything on our feelings. Am I doing all right now? And he said, no, it's not about how you're doing. It's about how I'm doing. And you're abiding in my love. And the more you realize how good I'm doing, you realize how good you're doing in me. And then my love ends up leading to repentance. Just this whole different perspective on what holiness, fun, joy, even sexuality. Somebody say sexuality. Oh, we can't stand talking about sexuality, but we're all about sexuality. We're sexual people. Look at your neighbor and say, you're a sexual person. Get over it. <laughs> we're not going to be awkward in here or nothing. It's like, I love thinking about sex, but just not at church. Like, okay, let's just move on from that thought. That thought is not scripted. Most of my thoughts aren't. But they are right there where the Holy Spirit's speaking. I'm, I'm just, you know, I just like to have a good time. So, okay, we're right there at verse 9. Just as the, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Let's say those four words together. Abide in my love. Now, let's see what it says. What's the ramifications in verse 10? If you keep my what? Oh, my commandments. Okay, so love and commandments, these go together. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. So it looks like love actually ends up having this action and this trust. So if I keep your commandments, like this is like a good place to like feel your love and be centered in your love. In verse 11, which blows people's socks off the whole reason that jesus calls us i don't want to say the whole exhaustive reason but this is jesus speaking himself in verse 11 i don't know that this is exhaustive but once again this is red letters in verse 11 he says these things i have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that whose joy and that what and that your joy may be made full you mean Jesus invites us into obedience, into commandments, into an abiding relationship for the purpose of joy? John Piper, who's one of my favorite theologians, sorry. I do like John Piper. He's a, okay. Sorry, I just set myself up really terribly. <laughs> but write this down. He says this, and I really think that it's a great thought. He says that, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is not, he's not really cool with like disgruntled, mad, frustrated Christians. He's not cool with people giving his name a bad reputation. He's not cool with robotic, obligatory obedience. Like people that have the joy of the Lord give him great glory. Okay? Write this down. All obedience is not created equal. There's obedience according to the law, and there's obedience according to intimacy and abiding. 
And the obedience that's according to the law makes a Pharisee by which we can judge our obedience compared to other people's obedience. But the obedience is based on joy and his commandments and his love actually calls other people into delightful obedience, sharing in the heart of God. Amen? So all obedience isn't created equal. All right. All right. So Jesus said, I say this so that your joy may be made full. Open up tonight as we move a little further. We're going to land in 1 Corinthians 10 and 9 for a little while. 1 Corinthians 10 and 9. So that whole thought right there was literally just something that the Lord gave me during worship. I just want you guys to know that Jesus, like, he likes your joy. He likes your love. He likes your dreams. He put that stuff there. He's about life. Anything that's contrary to life, he's just not about it. So if that thing that you're participating in is contrary to life, he's not about that thing. Not just because it's bad and it's a don't. It's because he loves your heart and he wants you to succeed in his heart. So it's so much bigger than just do's and don'ts. Amen. So last week, I want to throw this back up there. The whole thought last week is that it all comes down to love. That's what we talked about, is that our primary calling in God isn't to be in a relationship with the opposite sex, but our primary calling is to be like Jesus, is to be love. Throw that first point up there. For the people that weren't here last week, this was all we talked about. Before you date, during dating, before you're engaged, during engagement, before marriage and during marriage, in all of that, seek to be conformed into the image of love. This is where the power is. This is where the life is. This is where the joy is. This is where life happens. Before you do any of this, before the, the way it makes you feel, the, before the way you think other people perceive it, before the way it makes you look, maybe you get the girl of your dreams. Like That really doesn't count if you're not seeking to be conformed into the image of love. Because they say that beauty is only skin deep. Only love is going to sustain you. I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I believe it's verse 7 or 8. It says love never fails. Love is not going to fail you. Because God is love. This is the point of relationship. This is actually the point of life. Is to be conformed to the image of God. I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of repeat some stuff from last week. Most of the times we think we have relationship problems. When we really just have a, a problem with our own heart. We have selfishness, pride, lust, and the list goes on. And those things are never found in healthy relationships. Selfishness will ruin a relationship. Pride, egotisticalism, if that's even a word, I don't even know what I just said, but just act like I didn't say it. Lust, those things will ruin a relationship. So many times we think we have a relationship problem, but really we just have a problem in cultivating our heart. We come with wrong expectations and we think that marriage is going to make us happy. And we think that it's our partner's obligation to make us happy. And it's all about us. And when we come into anything and make it all about us, it's just anti-Jesus. Jesus wasn't all about himself. He was actually all about everyone else, even to the point of death on a cross. And he's the one that showed us what life is all about. Marriage isn't about what you can get out of it. It's what you can bring to it because marriage is God's idea and God is love. Jesus invites us into the opportunity of partnering with him daily in love. Every day we make decisions that either look like love or don't look like love. Every day we get to choose, is this decision, is this mindset, is the way I'm thinking, is the way I'm judging, is this love or is this not love? And we're invited to be conformed 
into the image of love. 1 John 4.10, we all know this verse. It'll be on the screen. What is love? Uh, let's see. I don't think we got the whole verse on there. Oh, there we go. This is love. Jesus loved us long before we loved him. It was his love, not ours. He proved it by sending his own son, Jesus, to be the pleasing sacrificial offering to take away our sins. This is love, self-giving, other-centered. When we come into a relationship, we have to realize that it's about love, not really about what it looks like. God teaches us covenant love. Write that down. Covenant love. And as we learn covenant love, we learn to fall into God, not away from God. As we learn covenant love, we begin to to have discernment about what love and life is really about. We begin to learn how to love ourselves. We begin to learn how to love other people. We begin to learn to, to walk in the rhythm of God's love. Because a fully loved person can fully give themselves away because they know they lack nothing. I'll say that again. A fully loved person can fully give themselves away because they understand that in Christ they lack nothing. Amen? Amen. Thanks for being here. Look at your neighbor and say, man, I like your converse. You like, I, like your, I like your vans. All right, let's get into the let's get into the main point. Somebody said, "Shh, <laughs> gotta shh these people." Hey, it's always cool in God's house. Let's get into the main point for tonight. It's on the screen. We do life for the glory of God. We're talking about relationship, and and even as I just talked about, like God wanting us to have joy, I believe that that joy reflects His glory. I believe that all we end up doing, even the food we eat, even the relationships that we share, even the music that we listen to, we do it all for the glory of God. We do life for the glory of God. We say that God is good, but is he all good or is he only partly good? We sing that, you are good, good, oh. You ever kind of wonder, like, do you ever kind of like try to flesh that out and like, like, Lord, you're good. What does that mean? What does that feel like? What is the practical dynamic of that in my life? I think that is a huge confession. And I think the goodness of God and the character of God, Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you may know God. What's eternal life? Heaven? No, the knowing of God in an intimate relationship. This is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, who he has sent. This is what the whole Christian life is about. It's not just about doing church with like cool lights and stuff. It's about knowing God. And then we come to church because we know God. And then we celebrate the knowing of God and celebrate the heart of God together. You see, God is good. But my question is, is he all good or is he only partly good? John the Beloved, he wanted us to have this understanding in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is what he says in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him. And we announce to you, help me out, that, read this with me, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Like, I like how he just says at all. Like, 
God is light, and in him there's no darkness. And he's like, just in case you're at all. Like, he's light, and in him there's no darkness. And they're like, but what about, he's like, no, at all. What we truly believe about God, God as revealed in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in bodily form. So if we don't agree with Jesus as the visible image of God, we have to do away with the New Testament and go back under an old covenant mindset. Amen? So Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact expression of God's character, and he's the radiance of his glory. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And then John says, hey, God is light, and in him, dude, there's no darkness at all. There's no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God is good, but the question that I think we have when it comes to our, the practicality of our lives is, is he, is he good for me? Is he just theoretically good, or is he also practically good? Is he good right here in my now? Is he good in my becoming? What about in my schooling? Schooling's terrible. What about in my relationships and in my family? Is he good there too? What about in my dreams and my passions? Like, is he offended by those things? Is he good even in my, my sexuality? Does he know best? And not only does he know best, but is he good in knowing best? In many years of my preaching, I've always compared Jesus to being the homeboy and the, like the shepherd or the, or the, construct, uh, the carpenter. And the Holy Spirit's like Columbo. He's the detective and the father's like Gandalf. He's really wise, but he's totally irrelevant. He's just like, yes, I don't know what he, I don't know what he would say. Like he doesn't, is he good for like right here, right now? Like is he the same yesterday, today and forever? Or is he only good for like Moses and people like that? But is he good for us? And John says, this is the message that we have heard, that God is light and there's no darkness in him. And in case you're wondering, at all, there's no darkness in him. He can be trusted. You can trust your heart, your frustrations, your fears, your failures, your past, your present and your future in the hands of a God who is only good, who only wants the best for you. This is the core of the gospel message. If God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, then why is he going to send a preacher to condemn you? We have so much mixture that when you do better, you'll get the brownie points and then he'll love you more. But John says, look, he's good all by himself. He doesn't need any help being good to you. I might have said this last week. I'm not sure if I did, but a dude told me one time, he said, dude, if I hear Romans 2, 4 one more time, I'm never coming back. And I said, there's the door, bro. And he never came back. Romans 2, 4 says, don't take lightly the love and the loving kindness of the Lord. Don't you know that it leads to repentance? Seeing God's goodness is what turns the heart. Seeing that God has always been good, even when we were bad, our badness cannot negate his goodness. We don't have the power to control him like that. Yes, he's good. He's good for it all. He authored it all. Therefore, he's good for it all. Only the designer can give understanding to the complexity of the design. Only the designer can give clear Exhaustive instruction about the operation of the design. God's not looking to keep the fun out. He's looking to keep the fun in. I just read it in John 15. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. I'm telling you this, people, because I want your joy to be full in me. 
Jesus isn't looking for a robotic church. He's looking for a bride who is partnered with him in life that can bring his glory into a world that's full of darkness and sickness and brokenness and perversion. He's looking for real people that are as weird as me. And they're as weird as you. Like people that sometimes have to fight back lust. People that sometimes have confusion. People that sometimes don't feel like worshiping. People that sometimes push through the veil of unbelief. People that say, no, I will still choose you. I will still choose you when it doesn't look the way I thought it was. I will still choose you. And it's His goodness that sustains us in that. When we have suspicion about God's goodness and intent, we come into a place of unbelief and mistrust. When we have suspicion that maybe God's good over here, but He's not good right here, we have suspicion. And here comes unbelief. Here comes mistrust. And this is a place where obedience is usually non-existent. This is where sin begins to come in, a place of second-guessing God's design. When we don't trust Him in the good, the bad, and the ugly, that suspicion begins to say, well, maybe He's just, maybe He doesn't know. And I put this on the screen. In sin, it's when we seek to satisfy a legitimate need with an illegitimate source. We begin, I just don't know. I mean, God, you're good in church. You're good for this. But as far as like my relationships and my sexuality, like these are my things. I don't know if you're good there. So I'm going to seek to satisfy a legitimate hunger to be known in intimacy without shame. A legitimate hunger. I'm seeking to satisfy that need with an illegitimate source. Amen? So this leads to compartmentalizing our life. This is yours, God, and this is yours, God, and this is yours. But this right here, it's mine. Better said, I trust you with these things. But really, when it comes to these things, I don't trust you there. I don't think you're good when it comes to this. It's like saying God's untrustworthy. And this is the, this is the key thing. Knowing God is the key thing. Knowing God is the key thing. Going to church is a good thing. Having accountability is a good thing. Worshiping God obviously is an aspect of knowing God. Doing ministry and outreach is a good thing. But the key thing for young adults, the key thing for the church is knowing God. I can't know God for you. You can't know God for me. The key thing is to go after knowing the heart of God. Not just good doctrine, but an overall scope of this is who God is as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Learning to relate to Him. Learning to be loved through your confusion. Learning to bring your baggage and your stuff to Him and letting Him heal it. That usually doesn't just happen in church. A lot of times that happens when we get away from everything else and we begin to say, God, teach me your heart like David in the fields. It's not always pretty because the junk that we bring in isn't always pretty, but the Lord can redeem it. Amen? Amen. You don't need me to be the Holy Spirit for you. I can tell you this. Most decisions, and I don't want to be like 99.9% because I don't have an average, but most decisions, the majority, the overwhelming majority of decisions. Oh, I'm about to say all. Maybe all my decisions in 13 years of following Jesus that were crossroad decisions, that were decisions of integrity, that were decisions of conviction, that were decisions of my testimony, that were decisions of really declaring who I am in God. I did not need somebody to tell me this way or that way because the Holy Spirit had already spoke to me. This is what I'm saying and this is what I'm doing. 
Man can confirm that thing, but nobody can be God for you. You are called to walk with the Holy Spirit in union. What am I saying? I'm saying, dude, the ball is in your court. God is good. You can trust your heart with Him, but you're going to have to learn to navigate and walk with Him. You don't need... Oh, Lord, here I go. I think I've already been there tonight. You don't need somebody to convince you, oh, Lord, help me. Because I know it's going to get uncomfortable because I know that people probably don't want to hear it. But then I get on my soapbox and like, well, he's just preaching his convictions. No, you don't need a preacher to tell you that, that boy's hands don't belong there. You don't need a preacher to tell you that. Man of God, you don't need a preacher to tell you don't touch that girl like that. This is a matter of conviction, beauty, holiness, legacy, integrity, passion, anointing, fire, intimacy. I went there. And I would say that holiness is still sexiest, but y'all don't want to hear that. Because we don't talk about sex in church because that's over there. It's super sexy. sexy. Thank you, sir. A true ranger in who there's no deceit. Because I don't access my sexuality in church. I just do it on a computer where nobody can see. It's private. No, your fruit ain't private. Your fruit is public. Your destiny ain't private. Your destiny is public. God loves the mess out of you, and He has called you to be a chosen race, a holy people, a set-apart people for His possession. I've said this before, and, and, and I don't say this to... To shame anybody. I say this to give you permission. You're not like me. I'm not like you. We both carry the DNA of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the resurrected Christ. But you know, sometimes I feel like maybe I shouldn't say stuff to people that I would say to my son. But then, like later, I'm like, no, I should have told him that. But y'all aren't my kids. But, you know, I do have the mic, so... <laughs> I am not a perfect person in and of myself, but I learn to walk in the abiding righteousness that Christ has declared over me. It's His goodness, it's His righteousness, it's His faithfulness that continues to allow me to walk a faithful walk before Him. I'm not boasting in myself. It is the righteousness of God in Christ. But men and women, I want you to know that there is freedom from, from sexual perversion. There is freedom from those things. I have not been a victim of pornography at all for over 13 years. Amen. 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 I don't think it's because I'm tough enough. Sometimes I'm just like, oh, I'm going I'm to win this battle. But 13 years ago, I walked away from it because I know it defames the name of my God in my heart and my imagination and in my marriage. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. Because it breaks the heart of God. Can I get a witness? And because God has better for you. So I say that to give you permission. God isn't ashamed of you because you look at pornography. Jesus put on flesh and blood so he could be tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Why do you think he became a human if he didn't want to understand the human condition? 
Man, that's just real talk. He's not ashamed of you, but he invites you to the better way. He says, your past can be, is fully erased in the light of my love. There's no condemnation here. Go and sin no more. Learn to live in the knowledge of me. Learn to live from me, not only for me. Because this is the place where sin loses its grip. Amen. That was just a whole side project. In sin, we seek to satisfy a legitimate need from an illegitimate source. God, you're good, you're, you're, you're good enough for this, but you're, you're, I don't know if I can trust you for that. I've seen so many people fall away from a healthy community of faith because they took their sexuality into their own hands. I've seen it more than any other thing. When we're dealing with relationships and sexuality, I've seen more people fall away from fruitfulness because they decided to take their sexuality into their own hands. I've seen it more than any, and I've been pastoring for 12 years. Some of you are like, wow, that's really weird. This dude, they let this dude pastor people. When we stiff arm God's goodness, and I've seen it, as we pull away from the protective covering of wisdom and love and community, quote me on this, every time I see hurt, people being miserable, regret, loneliness, confusion, and pain. Jesus says, you have legitimate needs. I'm a legitimate source. Come to me. Don't settle for anything less than covenant love and God's best for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. I want you to see this. Whether then you eat or drink, somebody say whatever you do. Whatever you say it again. Y'all think that means whatever? And talk about eating and drinking or just whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. Wow. Next verse. 1 Corinthians 9, 23. I do how many things? All things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That I might be in fellowship, union, participation with the one who's fully good, who's my creator, who designed this thing, who tells me how to, to operate in that design. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Go ahead and go to the next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, what conclusion are you coming to, Paul? That one died for all, therefore all died? Let's keep on going. And he died for all so that they who might live might no longer live for themselves, but they might live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is the consequence of discovering God's goodness. Love is beginning to control me. Why would I want to operate outside of the bounds of love? Love is beautiful. God is love. He set this thing up, and I'm realizing he gave it all for me. In all things, glorify God. Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. But there's two different ways we can look at living life for the glory of God. We can prioritize God. I want you to write this down. Or we can centralize God. There's two different ways that we can live in this all things reality for the glory of God. We can prioritize God or we can centralize God. Let's first look at prioritizing him. If we're going to prioritize God, we have to put him on a list and he becomes a priority, not an all-consuming reality. So now he's on a list with many others. So if I prioritize God, where am I going to put God on a list of five? 
makes sense, doesn't it? You're supposed to say number one. Number one. Okay, cool. Number one. Uh-oh. Come on, marker. Number one. Everybody say G-O-D. Okay, we got G-O-D. I'm going to live for his glory. He's going to be number one in my life. And then what, what's some other good things? Faith, family, football. I like that. But, but number two can't be up here. Like it's got to be down here, huh? There's got to be like a gap. Make sense? So I'm going to try really hard to keep number two like down here somewhere. I don't know where it's supposed to be, but it's supposed to be down here somewhere. It can't be like up here. Number three, faith, family, football. Okay. How about, how about church? How about, uh, I'll just put sexuality. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. We just all want to do it. Stop it. You hush. I'll kick you out of here. So we prioritize God. There's one thing that I see wrong with this that just glares at me. Is that when we prioritize God, we put him on a list. And we put him at the top of the list. But to put him on a list makes a comparison to him. Or even a potential rival to him. Because we're saying that other things could have the potential to compete with number one. What if, they, what if my family rivals God with my time? With my energy? with my thought, with my devotion. This is to compare God with other things, always trying to make sure that he's at the top. But does God in his goodness even have a comparison? So when we live from a priority scale and put God at the top, and this is just theoretically speaking, we're supposed to do all things for the glory of God, then we really have to be sure that that he's at the top. We have to keep him at the top. God has to be first in our life. But what if he's not first in our life? How do we get him first in our life? And how do I know when he's first in my life? Maybe it's when I've prayed enough, fasted enough, witnessed enough, sinned little enough. Somebody say, when's enough enough? I don't know. This is religion's way basically to say, if I put God number one to the best of my ability, then I can compartmentalize God. And then down here, I can just do what I want to. As long as I keep him number one, he doesn't really have to affect this because theoretically God has his box up here. Everybody following me? You see, there's a lot of people that read God's word, but they're not willing to conform into the image of Jesus. If you don't believe me, go check out John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but they testify of me, but you're not coming to me to possess that life. So it's like, I really feel guilty when I'm spending time with my family because God's supposed to be number one. Like in my sexuality, like I don't ever want this to rival God. And so a lot of times I feel guilty about like trying to hash this sexuality thing out. Because I don't want it to rival God. Everybody see what I'm saying? Okay. Cool. Do we have an eraser? Eraser fill on the floor. Tell your neighbors you like their sneakers.
God isn't a part of our life that needs to be prioritized. God has become our life. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and you have, you're hidden with Christ in God. And when God, who is your life, is revealed, you're going to be revealed with him in glory. So God isn't a part of my life that I'm on a hamster wheel saying, I don't need to spend too much time over here. Over here, these things are competing. I've got to get back into my devotion. I've got to do right for God. I've... We're not on a hamster wheel of trying to invite God into our life. God came down and made himself a part of our life when he took on humanity. Died and got out of the grave and he said, now I'm yours and you are mine. Amen? Let's look at a way of centralizing God. Everybody follow me here? Go to Romans chapter 14. Turn your Bible on and go to Romans chapter 14. God. Do I need to put this up on the stage? A lot of y'all probably can't see it, eh? Brent, will you, will you help me? You can just, uh, yeah. Little bit more, little bit more, little bit more. Dude, they love you that much. Right there, baby, right there. Thank you, you're awesome. <laughs> Marriage. Church. Family. Sexuality. What about hobbies? Friends? Y'all like friends? Nobody said friends. Like, maybe y'all don't like friends. What about coffee? Let's just put coffee down here below, friends. Oh, money. Coffee, you got to have two E's. Oh. Career. Yeah, let's just do job. I can't spell career. Job. Man, look at that handwriting. That's so beautiful. This is taking God off of a list and putting him at the center of our whole reality. This is taking him off of a list and putting him at the center. This is a lifestyle of recognizing that Jesus is at the center and all that we are and all that we're becoming. In this light, he has direct influence to every aspect of our life. Now in marriage, I'm not trying to have marriage below God. I'm having marriage because of God and direct influence of God. I'm not doing church. I'm seeing God in the church. I'm not micromanaging or feeling guilty about any of this stuff because now I'm allowing God to define my sexuality, find glory in this season of my life in my sexuality, not feeling guilty about it. I'm allowing his heart and knowing him to shape me, mold me, and cause me to have a Christ-like perspective in all of these things. These things can't compete for God because nothing can compete with God because he's good all on his own. 
He is not threatened by any of these things. He's actually inviting us into these things to see his supremacy and his goodness in all of these things. If we don't talk about these things, they become taboo and we give them a false power that they were never meant to have. Sexuality doesn't have a power over you. That is shame that's trying to jump on you and have a false power. Our error in any of this doesn't define us. Grace defines us, but we have to align ourselves with that confession and with that agreement to see God centered in all of this, not just prioritized by do's and don'ts and how much time you spend with God and how much time you don't. Shame will destroy in comparison in the church. Shame will destroy the marriage covenant. Shame will destroy your sexuality because shame is always a liar. Can I get a witness? I heard a guy say it like this. He says, God doesn't want to be number one. He just wants to be one. Wow. I don't think y'all got that. Oh, look at, how did you do that? I didn't even see that. Whoever did that, you're so awesome. It's not that God is competing to be number one. He just wants to be one. There's no compartmentalization compartmentalization here there's no place that jesus doesn't touch i declare that jesus is good he's only good and at the center there is no part of my life that i don't want him to touch i'm not on a hamster wheel of trying to make jesus one i'm on a discovery of realizing that we are one i'm gonna say that again I'm not on a hamster wheel of trying to make Jesus one. I'm on a discovery of realizing that we are one. And I invite his majesty, his glory, his goodness to impact every aspect of who I am. I'm tasting and seeing that he is good. Romans 14, 17, it'll be on the screen. I will wrap this thing up right now, I promise. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of rules about what we eat or what we drink or where we go or who we know or what we listen to or what we do or don't do. It's not about any rules. It's not about prioritizing God. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of rules of circumcision or uncircumcision. Or do you pray like this or do you not pray like that? It's not a matter of externals, but it's the realm. Somebody say the realm of the Holy Spirit. Filling our lives with righteousness, peace, and joy. Do you know where you can find the kingdom of God? Not with just God at the top of your list. But this all becomes under the influence of the king's dominion and the king's realm. And how do you know if the kingdom of God is in operation in that aspect of your life? It looks like righteousness, peace, and joy. This is where I want his righteousness, peace, and joy. I want his dominion in all of these parts of my life. He's good, isn't he? He's only good. And, and, and I guess this is just, this is my plea to you. Throw the, throw the next point up on the screen. We do marriage for the glory of God. This is why we do marriage. Don't miss out on the fact, if you don't know God and you don't know Jesus, who is God, I pray that the message here tonight, and Tubes, we can come up on piano. I pray that the message here tonight will, will just cause you to step back and be like, I mean, I don't want to be like this 
fundamental, but dude, do I like the results that I'm getting? Am I happy? Do I have joy? Do I have peace? Do I love myself? Do I love my neighbor? Like I challenge your reality with the reality of what the kingdom of God is. Because God doesn't want to micromanage you. He just wants to be invited in a kingdom dynamic of righteousness, peace, and joy in every one of these things. So we do marriage for the glory of God. Marriage is not about you being happy. Marriage is about God being exalted in a union with the opposite sex. Marriage is when two people say Jesus is enough, so I'm enough and you're enough and we can be enough together in Christ. Amen? We marry for the glory of God. Happiness is a byproduct of marriage, not the agenda of marriage. The agenda of marriage is for God's glory. So if marriage is only about you being happy, then what happens when you're not happy? When you're not happy, you just say, well, I'm not happy anymore. I don't want to be married anymore. Guys, when I don't like my wife, I choose to like her for the glory of God. When I'm not feeling the passion in my marriage, I choose her heart and her body for the glory of God. When I don't feel like lifting my hands and praising Him, I do it for the glory of God. When I'm not feeling fire on my marriage, I pursue my wife's heart. Somebody help me. For the glory of God. I try to tell my daughter, Baby, there's going to be people more pretty. They can sing better. They can do more. Guys in the room, you're going to get married and you're going to look around and be like, I might have married the wrong one. No, you didn't. You married the right one. Help me out. For the glory of God. Stay in your lane. Everything you see on Instagram and everything you see from Hollywood and everything that has Jesus on it isn't bearing the fruit of Jesus. Stay in your lane with self-control, with the sober mind and say, I'm going to do this, help me out, for the glory of God. There's only one way you're going to make it in marriage, guys. It's going to be for the glory of God. Because feelings are going to come and feelings are going to go and you're going to compare yourself with other people when you start getting bald, when you start getting tired, when you start getting old and ugly and you're going to say, did I miss God? And God's like, no, here's my righteousness. Here's my peace. You can do this for my glory. That's good stuff. Because if marriage and church is all about how it makes me feel, then as soon as the church doesn't make me feel just right, I'm gone. As soon as my friends don't make me feel just right, I'm gone. We do all of this in the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. We choose the character of Christ. We choose servanthood. We choose selflessness for the glory of God. Marrying for the glory of God is the only sustainable way to see legacy in the earth. Can we give God a hand clap of praise tonight? Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Here at the table, we are discovering Jesus together. If you were encouraged by today's message, do us a favor and subscribe to this podcast. That way you never miss out on future episodes. Also, help us get the word out by sharing this podcast on your preferred social media platform. To keep up on what's happening in our community, you can follow us on Facebook at The Table or on Instagram at the table CCLA.